If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be spending all of our time this morning in the book of 1 Peter. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, I would encourage you, if you're watching here within the room with us, to look in the chairs around you. You're going to see big black books and small black books. And my encouragement for you is to grab one of those small black books. The book of 1 Peter is near the end of the Bible. And if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, that is our gift for you here today. One other note before I start, just a couple of other announcement-like items to share. You know, I've learned one thing at working at Delaware Bible Church for almost eight years now, and that's if problems are going to happen, they're going to happen on Sunday mornings. Let me give you an example. If you're going to make a sermon gaffe a couple weeks ago where you say that women are complicated, you make it on Sunday morning, not when you prep before that. I am still hearing about that from ladies in the line picking their kids up from school a couple weeks later. (laughs) If there's going to be an issue where one of the pastors on staff is not pressing the button in exactly the right location to pull the screen up for the baptismal, it's going to be on Sunday morning. As well, if we have an internet issue, it's often on Sunday morning. And the guys in the back have shared with me that we are having some issues with the internet being intermittent for the live stream. So if you're viewing with us today during the live stream, please know they're doing everything that they can do within their power on that. We're working to correct it. We're working to do everything that we can. But with that, if there's for some reason things get cut off, we will have the audio file available later for you to listen to. As well, along with that, uh, you may notice if you're seated here within the room that it's a little bit warmer than normal because here's another thing that happens. If the HVAC is going to go out, it's going to go out on Sunday morning. And I can tell you, because I'm the one that turned it on at 6 o'clock yesterday, that this unit has been running since 6 p.m. constantly all through the night, and it's given us as much juice as it can right now. This is as cold as it's going to get. So that tells me, number one, i got to hurry up here. And number two, just so you know, your dollars at Delaware Bible Church and your giving, we try to stretch as far as we can. The unit that is up on that roof that is uh, heating or that is cooling this room was put in here uh, before I was born, actually. And it was (laughs) seriously and it was given to us after Ohio Wesleyan was done with it. And it has been cooling this building God has provided for all of those years. That being said, it is at the end of its life, and we're going to rip it out this summer. I've already told Julian to cut the check for it. The elders have approved it, and that's getting done this summer, but it's not here yet. So, of course, when's it going to go out? It's going to go out, or it's going to have issues on Sunday morning and right before graduation. So we're doing the best that we can with that as well. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen on Sunday morning. All right, let's look at God's Word. If you would, please turn to 1 Peter 1. On August the 9th, 1788, just 12 years after the Declaration of Independence was signed, Abigail Judson, wife of Congregational Minister Adoniram Judson Sr., gave birth to a boy that they named Adoniram Judson Jr. Adoniram grew up in a Christian home in Malden, Massachusetts, which was about a six-mile drive from downtown Boston, Massachusetts. As Adoniram grew, his family noticed signs of true genius in their son. 
He was so intelligent that he, uh, that he enrolled at what is now known as Brown University at the age of 16 and graduated as valedictorian of his class just three years later at 19. Shortly after that time, Adoniram rededicated his life to the Lord. And after he did that, he entered school at Andover Theological Seminary. It's there where he began studying missions, and he found that he had a keen interest in overseas missions. He decided that he would like to pursue missions work as his life ministry during his final year in seminary. And his next three years were incredibly busy. In those three years, he graduated seminary. He was appointed as a foreign missionary to the East. He was ordained. He was married to his fiance. Anne Hazelton, and based on his theological convictions about believers' baptism, he switched from being a Congregationalist to a Baptist. Now, originally, Anne and, and Adoniram were set to go to India, where they were going to serve as the first missionaries to enter the mission field from America. Yet, they were only there in India for a short amount of time. Because in a short span of around three years, the Judsons dealt with many trials, including persecution and suffering. They dealt with isolation, with treacherous travel, with famine, and with the death of close friends and of their first child. Adoniram and Anne's early days on the mission field, as well as many later days, were marked with persecution and with suffering. Persecution and suffering are themes that we clearly see throughout the Bible. And it is not something that the Lord shies away from allowing his children to go through. As we see throughout the Bible and as we see throughout the history of the church, God allows deep suffering within the lives of believers. And yet he always has great purpose in that suffering and he always brings himself glory through it. Suffering is a reality that all true followers of Jesus Christ go through. Jesus even told us that. In John 15, 20, Jesus said this, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And I would say that as we look at society around us right now, suffering is something that we continue to see more and more of Christians facing within our context here. So what does true Christian suffering look like? How does a believer respond to suffering? This morning, we're going to begin our summer study through the book of First Peter, where we're going to look to answer these questions. And a couple thoughts that I'd like to share with you before we jump into this text. Number one, as I just alluded to, this text that we're going to be looking at through this summer is one that I would say is incredibly timely. Originally, we were looking at going into the book of Acts, but Pastor Scott shared with the staff a few years or a few weeks back that we were going to be looking at 1 Peter through the summer and jumping in Acts in the fall. And while I had read through 1 Peter many times over the last few weeks, I just really started studying it and dwelling on it and meditating on it. And I thought, wow, what an incredibly timely book. Because within the context that we find ourselves in, I would sure that each of us could point to examples of suffering that they currently see. In some contexts, we see this happening for Christians refusing to do something, such as baking a wedding cake for a wedding that they deem illegitimate. In other contexts, we see Christian leaders being jailed for holding worship services in the name of health and public safety. 
In other contexts, we see Christians being persecuted simply for the beliefs that they hold. Now, again, the Bible shares with us that this hostility is not hostility that is foreign to the Bible. And spoiler alert, the reality is it's not going to get easier as time goes on. Persecution and suffering are real, and we should know as believers how to deal with them. Secondly, I would share that this study leads itself well into the book of Acts that we'll begin studying in the fall. And that's where we're going to see real historical and biblical examples of suffering in the local church as it's being founded. Third and finally, today is going to serve as an introduction in this text. In fact, I've only been assigned two verses. But as we look at the text and as we look at much of the context here within this book, it's my hope that you're going to take these things that we study today and you're going to take them and over the next two weeks, because again, as Pastor Aaron shared during announcement time, next week is his ordination and then the following week is graduation Sunday. We're going to be a few weeks out of this book. But that provides a wonderful opportunity for each of us to really be studying this book on our own. And I can tell you that as you study these things and as Pastor Scott or Pastor Aaron or as myself come and preach these texts at a later time, they're going to jump out to you more. You're going to be able to look and apply more things there as you personally study them on your own. So as we look at this book, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at who the author of the book is. So I'd encourage you to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1. The first part of it says this, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. The author of this text is the apostle Peter. So the first question that we're going to ask ourselves is this, who was Peter? Within the Bible, who was Peter? Peter was a well-known character in the Bible. And it's interesting, to stu- as you study Peter, you will see that more information is shared about Peter in the Gospels than any other disciple. Peter is a guy that the Bible tells us a lot about. But the most important thing that we see about Peter is that Peter was a Christian. Peter was a follower of Jesus Christ. We're not going to look there today, but if you were to turn to John in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we see Peter, whose original name was Simon in the Greek, or if you were looking at his name in Hebrew, it was Simeon being literally led to Christ by his brother Andrew after Andrew hears the message from John and then he takes his brother there and Jesus literally changes his name from Simon to Peter. He was literally led to Christ in person by his brother. Peter was a follower of Jesus Christ. Yet not only was Peter a Christian, but Peter was a fisherman. He had a humble job as a fisherman a job that many others during this time had as well. The Bible shares with us in John 1, that Peter was from a place named Bethsaida, which means the house of fishing. It was a small fishing village that sat on the hillside on the northeast part of the Sea of Galilee. So he grew up in a fishing town. Now he never moved far away from there, as Mark 1, shares with us, that Peter now lived in Capernaum, a city roughly six miles southwest from where he grew up, right next to the Sea of Galilee. So he only moved closer to the water. Now that area of Capernaum is one that we see often mentioned within the Gospels. Jesus performed many miracles there. He healed the centurion's son in Matthew 8 in, there in Capernaum. 
He healed Peter's mother-in-law, which also shares with us that Peter was married. And actually, many historians and biblical scholars say that Peter's wife went alongside of him as he journeyed and as he shared the truth of God's word with others. As well, Capernaum was a place where the casting out of the unclean spirit in the man was done in Mark as well. Now, Peter was a fisherman, and he was a partner alongside of James and John in a fishing business. Again, it's likely that since he spent so much time there near the water, that fishing just was something that came very naturally to him. And it was a skill that it was easy for him to pick up. Luke chapter 5 shares with us the event where Peter, James, and John became disciples. It's there where we see Jesus arriving on the scene. And these men worked fishing the entire night. And after they worked the entire night, they couldn't even come up with one fish. Jesus arrives on the scene. And he shares with them to cast their nets down one more time. They do that and they pull up so many fish that literally their nets are breaking from the weight of the fish and their boat starts to sink down. After that, it shared with us in Luke 5.11 that when they, had brought their, when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and they followed Jesus. Peter was a fisherman. But as Peter was a fisherman as well, Peter was an apostle. He was a Christian, he was a fisherman, and he was an apostle. Now, that word apostle means that he was sent out by Jesus. Peter was sent out by Jesus, and he was known as the most prominent of the apostles. The gospel writers emphasize this fact by placing his name at the head of the list of all the apostles. Peter was as known as the apostle who was not only the head of the apostles, but also the spokesman for them. We often see him leading by asking one question on behalf of the disciples. One of his most quoted responses comes after Jesus asked the disciples if they still wish to follow him after Jesus calls them out for their grumbling. Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, as we see in John 6. We also see in Matthew 16, 16, Peter responding to Jesus' question, but who do you say that I am? As he responds by stating, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was the spokesman of the apostles, but he was also part of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the disciples, along with James and John, who saw Jesus transfigured. He also, alongside John, was given the special task of preparing the final Passover meal. Peter was an apostle that was greatly used by Jesus, and Peter was bold. Now, often your boldness can either be a really good thing or it can get you in a lot of trouble. And we see both often being the case with Peter. Let's first look at how it got him in some trouble. We often, or we have seen within the Bible, Peter uh, getting himself into trouble in such events such as when Jesus walked out in the in water. Now, as Jesus walked out there into the water, Peter asked if he could go out and he could walk with Jesus, even after Jesus said, "It's me, fear not." So Peter walks out under the water. He takes his eyes off Jesus, and in doing so, plop goes right into the water. We see as well Peter denying that he knew Christ three times to save himself, just as Jesus prophesied that he would. 
Later, though, we see Jesus reinstating Peter for pastoral work. We see good examples, though, of Peter's boldness as well. Examples such as Peter being used to further God's kingdom in the book of Acts as he becomes the leading gospel preacher in the day of Pentecost, as he performs many notable miracles during the early days of the church. Peter was bold in his faith. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it shows us both the good things and the bad things that happened in light of his boldness. Finally, though, we see that Peter understood suffering. And that's why I would say that Peter was such a fitting person to write this book that we're going to be looking at. Multiple times in the Bible, we see Peter being jailed or persecuted for his faith. We see him in the book of Acts performing miracles, preaching the truth of God's word and running from persecution or being jailed. As well as if, we're looked, if we are to look at commonly held church traditions, we see even greater suffering that Peter went through. And we don't, hold, we don't find these texts within the Bible, but it's commonly held that Peter had to watch his wife be crucified. And as he watched her crucified, he encouraged her by saying, remember the Lord. Additionally, history tells us that Peter was in prison for nine months before being crucified on an upside-down cross by the emperor. He chose to be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy of being crucified in the same way that his Savior was. Peter understood suffering. Another man that understood suffering was that of Adoniram Judson. After relocating from India to Burma, Adoniram and his wife Anne's ministry continued to be an uphill climb. It took them three full years to relocate fully there to Burma, and it took them another three years to fully know and understand the language there for the Burmese that the Burmese spoke. After learning the language, Adoniram was able to preach and teach to the Burmese people. And praise the Lord, after he learned to do that, the first other Burmese confer- conversion took place with a couple of others shortly following. Despite the hardships that he and Anne went through, God was working through the Judson's ministry. Yet things continued to get harder for them. Shortly after witnessing these conversions, the Judsons lost their second child to disease in Burma. They felt isolated and alone with no community to share their burdens with. They were able to start their own church consisting of 10 members, But as they did that, they discovered that they were facing the possibility of persecution and death by the Burmese government. Adoniram continued to preach the truth and saw fruit from his ministry, yet these trials continued to persist. In 1822, his wife Anne was forced to return for medical support as she was in dire medical condition. Now, the church that they had there in Burma had 10 members at the time and was an incredibly fragile state. So she did not want her husband to go with her back because she was afraid that it could undo much of the great work that they were doing there. So they were completely separated from one another for the next two years. Yet God worked through that time, allowing Adoniram to completely translate the New Testament into the Burmese language, as well as completing the major parts of the Old Testament as well. Two years later, 
Anne, who was again healthy, re-entered Burma, and she and Adoniram were able to leave the small town where they had planted that church, to, and they were able to go to the head city there, the capital, Ava. They were able to do that because two new missionary families were able to come in and to take over their work there. The church that they had started was growing, now having 18 church members, having a building, a printing press, and a school. Shortly after the move, though, more trials persisted as Adoniram was captured by the Burmese government. Things had taken a massive turn for the worse, and Adoniram was accused as being a suspected spy and was sentenced to torture in prison for two years. Adoniram, much like Peter, understood suffering and persecution. He was tortured to near death. And this gave both of them a great ability to minister to those going through similar circumstances. Peter, as he wrote this text that we're looking at, wrote to a group who was facing great suffering and persecution. And so we're going to look at the people that Peter was writing to next. Next question we're going to be answering is when and where this book was written. Historically, we can see that this book was written around 64 to 65 AD. And in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter shares with us that he's writing this letter from Rome. He's writing this letter to these specific Roman provinces that we're going to be looking at here within just a few minutes. And as he writes this book, let's talk specifically about the people that he's writing to. Peter's writing to specific people that it shares with us in the other part of the first verse there. Let's look again at 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter is writing to a specific group of people. These people are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And first we're going to look at them being elect Peter addresses the spiritual status of the people that he's writing to in saying that they were God's elect. Now that word elect addresses their spiritual status in being taken from the Greek word, which means called out ones. These people were people that were elected. They were called out by God. And this word is also used in the Old Testament to describe how God picked out, how he chose, how he elected Israel to be his people. God elects, God knows his people. And the people that Peter is writing to are born again believers. That's why he uses some of the language that he does there within the second verse of this text. That's why he shares that they are elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that they are sanctified in the Spirit, that for the obedience of G to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, that they are born again followers of Jesus Christ. They are elected. And this shares with us that these are true believers, that Peter, a true believer, is speaking to true believers. But not only were they elected, but they secondly were exiles. They were elect exiles. 
And that word exiles there addresses their physical status. Now, if a person is considered to be in exile, a person, that basically means that they are forced away or unable to gain entrance to their actual home. They can't get into where they're supposed to be living at. Other translations that you may have in front of you may use the word strangers or pilgrims instead of exiles here within this context. And these believers, like all believers, were at a temporary residence that wasn't their actual home. And we talk about that and we sing about that sometimes as believers. We have a residence here. I, like many of you, are, re- are a resident of Delaware, Ohio. I have a home in the city of Delaware. It's my current residence, but I'm an exile. Where's my ultimate residence? Well, it's in heaven. My physical status is here, but ultimately my long time, my eternal status, that's in heaven. And he was speaking to these followers of Jesus Christ who were at these areas that weren't their eternal homes, but as well, he was speaking to their geographical location because they were of the dispersion. And this addresses the geographical status that they held. On the screen, you'll see a map, and you will see at the top part of that map, right up here on the screen, you will see where the text gets a little bit lighter there. And you will see those five provinces there. That's who Peter was speaking to, particularly here within this text. And this was a region in Asia Minor, what is now considered to be Turkey. Now, as Peter was speaking to these people, it's interesting that this book that Peter's speaking in is a little bit different than what we would normally see from, let's say, the Apostle Paul, who when he wrote, he would be speaking normally to a particular church. For example, if you were to look at uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul would be speaking to the church in Corinth. If you were to look at the book of Romans, he would be speaking to the church in Rome. As we see Peter here speaking, Peter is speaking to people within a specific geographical status, these five regions around here, but he's speaking to different churches there. They're scattered around here. It's not just one particular church. It's a scattering of them. These were Christians who were exiles. They weren't in their forever home, and they were within a certain geography. And yet the beautiful and wonderful part about the Bible is That regardless of the context, whether it's those people in Asia Minor back then or us today, this text has much to share with us. And so we're going to be looking specifically at what was going on at the region that these people were in during this time. Or what was the context around Peter's writing? Well, based on the authorship date that we gave this text, the Christians living in this region would have been ruled under King Nero during this time. Now, Nero was a man who was never known as being a kind ruler. He claimed the throne when he was just 17 years old. And one story of Nero that is shared is that his mother tried to dominate his early years, ruling with, or trying to help rule his first five years there as he served as the emperor. Now, after that five years was over, he had his mother cast out and killed so that he could lead in his own way. The Roman people characterized Nero as compulsive and corrupt. He had an overwhelmingly negative view of him by the people. In 64 AD, around the same time frame that this book was written, there was a huge fire, later named the Great Fire of Rome. 
This fire began small and it enveloped just a few small shops around Rome's chariot stadium. But it continued to grow and grow and it burned for a total of nine days. In total, this great fire destroyed two-thirds of the city of Rome. The Romans were totally devastated by the fire. Their great temples, their shrines, many of their homes were destroyed in this fire. Many people were killed in this fire as they didn't have a fire station that they could call and they could go put this out. Many of the men rushed with water to try to quench this fire. Many people died in this, either within the flames or of asphyxiation from it. All of the religious and many of the personal elements that characterize this culture were now up in flames. And many within Rome, as well as many historians today, believe that the Emperor Nero had set the city on fire by himself because of his great desire to build bigger and better. How do you build bigger and better? Well, you set the old one up in flames and take care of it. Yet the Emperor Nero chose to blame Christians for the fire. Now, Gentile believers were already a hated group within this culture, and we believe that's primarily who Peter was talking to here, those who were not Jewish that became followers of Christ because of their association with the Jews and because they were viewed as hostile to the Roman culture. Now, on top of that, they were being blamed with burning down their entire city. As a result, extreme persecution towards Christians began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. These believers suddenly found themselves in a context where their city was destroyed, where they had likely lost their home, possibly loved ones, and they were now being the ones being blamed for this and facing extreme religious persecution. It's in this context that we see Peter, an apostle, a disciple of Christ coming to share this letter with a group of believers who he loved, who likely because of his closeness to the region, who spent significant time ministering there, and he had much to share with them that's applicable for us today. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at why Peter was writing to these people, and we're going to look at just a very basic outline here of 1 Peter. Why was Peter writing to these folks who were dealing with great suffering and persecution? The first reason was because Peter wrote to give them hope. Peter wrote to share hope, and believers who are walking through persecution and suffering, absolutely, one of the things that they need most is hope. And Peter shares where they can find that hope, and I would encourage you to look at 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. It shares with us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter wrote to share hope. And what we see here is that the hope that Peter shared was different than many of the things that we normally put our hope in. Oftentimes, I can put my hope in things that I can find my security in. My wealth, my home, my possessions. Things that ultimately, just like that great fire in Rome, can very easily burn away. 
But Peter tells them not to hope in these things, but to put their hope in that living hope. The living hope that is brought to life because of the living hope that's found in Jesus Christ through his resurrection. This was a hope that these people knew was sure, that changed their lives, that had made great changes in their lives, and it gave them hope. It was real, it was true, and it was living. This was the same faith that Adoniram Judson put his faith in. Now often, God sustained Adoniram and his living hope through his wife, Anne. But it wasn't an easy road for Anne as well. Because Anne, facing poor health, facing poor living conditions, and struggling with smallpox and starvation starvation while trying to nurse their new baby, went to the prison every day to feed her husband. History shares that she would argue with and bribe the prison guards to assure that her husband would receive just a small amount of food, enough that he could live on each day. The survival rate of the death prison that Adoniram was in was incredibly low. But the Lord allowed Adoniram to survive, and he continued to minister to the people of Burma. Unfortunately, though, Anne's health continued to decline. The country being at war, mixed with her personally fighting disease and her husband's imprisonment, had taken a toll on her body. And on October 24th, 1826, Anne passed from death to life. Shortly after this, Adoniram, who was only left with his daughter Maria, witnessed her passing a few months after her mother. Adoniram, in this short time, had lost his wife and over time had lost all three of his children. Grief-stricken, Adoniram dug both of their graves himself and he secluded himself into a tiger-infested jungle. It was there that Adoniram spent 40 days fasting, grieving, and praying. During that time, the living hope that was present within his heart and life sustained him. And near the end of his time there in the jungle, he refocused his life on the mission that God had given him. He fully focused on his mission to the point where he even burned all of the papers that he had that allowed him to come back to the U.S. as a citizen. He was fully focused on what God called him to do. And when speaking on his suffering, Adoniram said this, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. Adoniram knew and understood that the suffering that he went through, that the persecution that he faced, he could have hope in because of the living hope that he experienced through Jesus Christ. And the application that we can take away from that is this, that despite the circumstances that believers face, they can have hope because of the salvation that has been gifted to them by Jesus Christ. That regardless of the trials that you're facing here with this morning and looking out, I know many of you in the trials that you are facing and it's not easy. You can have hope. You can have hope in the salvation that is found within Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 4.17 shares with us that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now notice the contrast here. 
The Bible does not share with us that the sufferings and the persecution that we go through are not real. But what it does share is that they're light. Now, they don't feel light at times when we go through them. It shares with us that they're momentary. They don't feel momentary. But they are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Contrast that. Light, eternal weight of glory. Momentary, eternal. What is ahead of us is so much greater. It is so much beyond our comprehension that it will make the trials, that the persecutions that we look at Within the grand scheme of things, if we keep perspective, they'll look as though they are light. So as we look at the trials that we go through, they're there. But ultimately, we can have hope and the living hope through them. Peter wrote to share hope. But secondly, Peter wrote to encourage honorable living. He shared that these people should be honorable in their living through these trials, I would encourage you to look at 1 Peter chapter number 2, verses 11 through 12. They share with us, Peter saying this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of, your, of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the same day of visitation. Peter is sharing with these people that they are continue to continue to keep good conduct despite the difficulties that they go to. Why? Because their good deeds are going to be seen. And as their good deeds are seen, as they're tried, as they go through these persecutions, God is going to do good things in them. And what we can see from this text is this, that Christians should be Christ-like examples in the midst of their suffering. As we go through suffering within our lives, we need to act as Christ would. And this text that we're going to be looking at through the summer really gives us a blueprint of how to do that. It shares with us, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, how we can live honorably in the midst of unbelievers. And I would say that as we look at that list of living in submission to government, of living in submission to our masters, of living in submission to our family, those are really pertinent things for us to think about right now. As well as it talks about honorable living in the midst of believers and in the midst of suffering, that the Bible in such a wonderful way paints truths that not only was true for the audience that Peter originally wrote to, but for us as well that we, excuse me, can and should live honorable lives in the midst of suffering that we faced. Finally, Peter writes to encourage perseverance. He writes to encourage believers to persevere through the struggles that they go through. And what we see from this text is that God works great purpose into a Christian's suffering. That the sufferings that we go through as believers, God has great purpose in. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. It shares this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. God works great purpose in our suffering. And I'm sure that all of us within this room can think of examples where God greatly used the sufferings that we went through to teach us things. In fact, I could point to lessons in my life, I'm sure as all of you could, where the only way that you look at and you could say, God could teach me that lesson is through the suffering, through the persecution that I went through. But not only does God use that suffering, not only does he use persecution in your life for you, but he uses it in the lives of other people too. Because as God has given us the blessing of the local church so many times, as we have seen people here walk through great difficulties. It's ministered to us. There have been people within this church who I don't know too awfully well, who have went through some very deep things. And my faith was strengthened just by seeing and knowing their example and seeing how real their faith was. God works great purpose in our suffering. And that's seen primarily through Jesus Christ. Because there has been no believer who has ever walked the face on this earth that has endured more suffering or persecution than Jesus Christ. Yet I'm pretty sure that as we look at the text of Scripture and as we look at the church, he made a pretty big impact. God uses our suffering, and he does wonderful things through it. I love the way C.S. Lewis renders this. He says, I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a death world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what makes us perfect. God works much good, much purpose in our suffering. And in many ways, he uses it as a megaphone, not only within our lives, but in the lives of others as well. But the beautiful thing about the pain and suffering that we go through is that, as we shared, it's temporary. It's not an eternal thing. One final passage to look at. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. Chapter 5, verse 10 shares, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This text shares with us that, yes, the sufferings are going to happen, and it's going to sting for a while. But one day, the pain and the struggles that we face here will be no longer, and we will be reunited with our Savior in heaven. The book of Romans shares with us In Romans chapter number 8, verse 18, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That these sufferings are temporary. That one day we will no longer be exiles. That our time here on this earth will end 
and we will be reunited with God in heaven. We will have a new sinless body and that we will no longer be in this temporary state here, but we'll be in our eternal home in heaven. The sufferings that we face now are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So as we think about these deep and weighty topics, as we think about suffering within the Bible, within history, and within our lives, I just want to encourage you to think about a few practical things here as we close our time today. Number one, as we shared, we are not going to be opening up the book of 1 Peter for another two weeks. And as we look at this through the majority of the time during the summer, I think this gives us a wonderful opportunity over the next two weeks for us each to personally study this book. It's a short book. It's only five chapters. You can read through the entire thing in about an hour. And my encouragement for you is to take some time and to study this book four times over the next two weeks. Read through it in completely four different times. That works out to two times a week, or you can structure it however you like. In fact, we have the scripture journals available out in the back, and I would encourage you to grab one of those. If you don't have $5 to pay for one, just go ahead and take one. It's our gift to you. Journal, read, study, mark up. Hey, what is God teaching me through this? What do I need to learn through this? What are some applications for my life? And deeply study this book. Anytime I personally study through a text and then listen to a sermon of it preached later on, I'm able to glean more of it because I personally studied it myself. And I know that as you study this book, you will personally be able to glean things as well in this incredibly applicable book for us today. Second, reflect on the suffering that you're currently experiencing. I know for many of you, that's going to be great. That the sufferings that you, feel, that you struggle with are real. And focus on those. Lean into God during these times. Journal how you can live a Christ-honoring life despite the suffering that you're called to endure. One of the best parts of the Bible that I find is that it's practical. And if you're struggling with persecution through unbelievers, you can look here within this text and it shares with you how you can respond to that. If you're struggling with submission to government, it shares with how you can respond to that. If you're struggling with submission to those who are within your family who are not following Christ, it shares with you how to respond to that. It shares with you how to respond through suffering as a believer. It shares with you how to minister to other believers. There is truth here for you. So consider how you can live a Christ-honoring life despite the suffering that you're called to endure. Finally, this, persistently pray for believers who are suffering for their faith. There are real legitimate sufferings that people within this room are going through. There are real legitimate sufferings that believers within the United States of America go through. But I would argue that primarily the greatest suffering that we see within the Christian faith right now is not here, but it's in other places. And so my encouragement for you is that as we consider this book, as we talk about true Christian suffering, that we take some time to pray for believers who are truly suffering for their faith. Missionaries that we know, maybe hear from our church, those whom you may personally know that are giving up their lives to suffer for their faith, pray for them. Pray for endurance. Pray that they would find hope. Pray that they would live Christ-honoring examples as Peter shares here within this text. Persistently 
regularly be praying for those who are suffering for their faith. Faith, hope, honorable living, and perseverance were all characteristics of Adoniram Judson's life. In total, Adoniram served the Lord in Burma for nearly 40 years, continuing to face great trials, including the passing of his second wife. Yet God greatly worked through his time in Burma, and during that time, Adoniram's accomplishments for the Lord included translating the Bible into Burmese, planting several churches where he was able to share the gospel, where he was able to baptize and disciple new converts, starting a printing press in a school, as well as making an English-Burmese dictionary. Adoniram died at sea, sailing to Europe for medical attention that he was never able to obtain. But yet as he died, he shared these words. The love of Christ, boundless in its breadth, infinite in its length, fathomless in its depths, and measureless in its height. In these deserts let me labor, on these mountains let me tell how he died the blessed Savior, to redeem a world from hell. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we see from your word that suffering is something that we as believers have faced and will continue to face until we are rejoined with you in heaven, until we are no longer exiles. Lord, I pray for the believers that are listening to this message this morning. That you, would give, that you would give them hope, that you would give them endurance, that they would live strong, Christ-like examples. Lord, that you would work money. Know that we are not the only believers that are suffering this morning, that there are those scattered around this world who are suffering greatly. And Lord, I pray as well that you would give them hope, that you would give them persistence in the work that they are doing, that they would be strong, Christ-like examples so that your kingdom would be furthered. Continue to work good and purpose through these things. And Lord, as we study this book over this summer, I pray, Lord, that you would specifically share with us in a time where culturally it looks like we're just going to have to continue more and more to struggle with these things, that, Lord, you would help us as believers to see how to respond biblically to them. Lord, that we would take joy in the work that you are doing and that we would seek to follow you and honor and glorify you above all. And I pray all these things in the name of our suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.